welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast, hosted by the creators of thepinksmoke.com, John Cribbs, myself, and Chris Funderberg. Today we are joined by Pink Smoke Third Mike, Mr. Pinland Empire. Mm, I don't know. I don't know. Martin Kessler's kind of got the third mic now. Oh, he's kind of snatched it up. I don't know, guys. I love Martin, but no, he doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) Got drama here. Marcus, I just want to say that I believe you are sincere and good at heart. You are on the right path and never stray from it. What are we talking about today, guys? And why is Marcus here? Are we talking about my favorite movie of all time? I think so. I didn't know it was your ult. I knew it was up there. Um, although it's funny you say that. First of all, we're talking about Surviving Desire, Hal Hartley's kind of feature film, not short film. It Whatever was, it is, it's great. Yeah, it's um, a 54-minute uh, yeah. TV movie he made for American Playhouse. Yeah. Um, this was like the first movie when I didn't know you guys very well. I used to go to your MySpace, and you were talking, you both wrote something about Surviving Desire. And I remember thinking, like, oh, they really like this movie. These are the only two people I've ever, like, at that point, kind of known that even mentioned this movie. Uh yeah, so it's kind of, you know, funny. 17 years later, we're here talking about it now. <laughs> After all this time, John, you had more of an intro, but we stepped all over it. Oh, I stepped man, all over it. it. Sorry. <laughs> you no, didn't do no, anything. That, that I perfect. did. All I was going to say was we're talking about surviving desire, but what I want to kind of like open it up with, Chris, is, you know, of course, mentioning that we both went to SUNY Purchase, but... You've always said that you chose SUNY Purchase because it was Hartley's alma mater. That's true, right? Yes, that's true. Um, I wouldn't have gone to college if I didn't get into SUNY Purchase. I didn't get into any other colleges. I had failed out of high school and had to get an equivalency degree. They don't give you a GED in Pennsylvania. You go take like uh, summer courses, like six weeks, eight weeks, something like that in the summer. And they're like, close enough, you get a degree and get to graduate, right? So I'd gone and done that after senior year while working a, um, a full-time job uh, as a dishwasher in the Christiana Hilton down in Metro Form, Delaware. And yeah, and I didn't get in any place else. I might've gotten into the University of the Arts in Philadelphia, but SUNY Purchase was the only place I, I, I got into and really the only place I wanted to go. If I hadn't gotten in there, I, I most, almost definitely wouldn't have gone to college. And it was because Hal Hartley went there. That was really when I looked up film schools, you very quickly um, get a sense that most of them are a scam. Uh, most of them are a waste of time or they're just like, you know, all higher education, like rich people networking sort of fake meritocracy, uh, you know, debt scams. Um, so I, I had gone there. Now you, I can't remember, did you, I can never remember if you didn't know who he was before you went there or if you went there because you looked so much like Kevin Smith at the time and Kevin Smith was a huge Hal Hartley fan. No, that's why I always find it interesting, your story, because it was exact opposite for me. I had not heard of Hal Hartley until I got to purchase. And, you know, for me, it kind of came down to I was accepted into a lot of colleges because I freaked out and thought I've got to apply everywhere because I can't not go to college and uh, came down to either purchase or the North Carolina School of the Arts, which uh, would have been when David Gordon Green was uh, a student there. I think he would have been like a senior at the time. 
But ultimately, I decided on purchase because I wanted to live in New York and because it was a more intimate program. It only took 20 students a year. But it wasn't until I actually got up there and met Iris Khan, the head of the film program, and she was saying, how hardly this, how hardly that. <laughs> you know, I, I figured, oh, I, should, I guess this is a guy that I should check out. And so I went to the Purchase Library and watched Trust on Video. It was the first time I ever saw a Hal Hartley movie. And it wasn't until we met and hung out and you had your, in my mind, infamous tape of Surviving Desire and Band of Outsiders that I actually got to see Surviving Desire <laughs> for the first time and fell in love with it right away. It's still my favorite one of his. Oh, that's funny. I I had forgotten about that tape when we were going to do prep for this because I was thinking I used to watch that movie all the time. I don't remember owning the VHS. And of course, it was a dub I had made. <laughs> of course, that's what I had been watching. Now I can think about it. Now, you didn't go to SUNY Purchase because Danny Liner, director of Dude, Where's My Car on Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle, went there. That's not those, why you those movies were still far in the future at that yeah. point. <laughs> they still but it's funny have... you mentioned the surviving desired VHS because eventually I bought the VHS, which had the most hilarious description on the back. Every Hal Hartley description or like marketing ad, you know, is ridiculous. And this one said like she's writing a story about their romance, but he's not going to like that she's about to write the end. It just makes it sound like the dopiest <laughs> oh, romantic yeah. comedy you've ever seen. It's like the back of the trust box was like, she's 15, he's 17. And it's like, wait, what? Yeah, Sorry. yeah. I know exactly the description you're talking about with trust. That's funny. Trust was the first Al Hartley movie I saw, not realizing who it was, because I was like nine. It was on cable. It used to come on cable. And then I remember when I became like an adult, and early young adult got into Hal Hartley, looked him up on the internet, and I was like, oh, that movie. Because when I was like, oh, more I was 10, actually. When I was 10, I was like, this is like bad acting. I remember thinking that. Like, why are they talking like, <laughs> like when the movie starts? You're like, Dad, give me $5. And I was like, why are they talking like that? And here, we, and here we are now. The first one I saw was Simple Men. And I have no idea why I watched it other than like, I watched American indie movies at the time, uh, you know, that that was just like obviously in an era when I'm learning about movies where I was watching, you know, Jim Jarmusch and, and Richard Lankletter and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not sure I can't. The timeline is all jumbled in my head. If I knew Kevin Smith liked him and I was a big Kevin Smith fan in high school, and that's why I sought him out or if it like cemented it. I was also a Jarmusch fan and it felt like they had some relationship to each other. Um, but after I saw Simple Men, no, I remember exactly how I got into Hal Hartley. Holy shit. This all just came back to me. I lived in rural Pennsylvania. I lived in Southern Chester County out in farmland, right? And I would look at the newspaper and see what was showing up in Philadelphia, either at the Ritz Five or Ritz at the Bourse. And I would pick a random movie to go up to see. And there was a really bad, like two and a half star review of Amateur in the paper that made it sound interesting to me. So I went up and saw it sight unseen and loved Amateur. I was like, this is like nothing I've ever seen in my life. I fucking love this movie. I had a similar reaction to... um to the underneath the Steven Soderbergh, which I saw in the same theater. Uh, those are now that's all like, Oh, those were like two really formative theater going experiences for me. But after that, I was like a huge fan. And I actually had this, like, we'll get into it later, but it was sort of like, this is what I, it was this revelatory moment in like <laughs> film life development of like, this is what I prefer 
if Pulp Fiction were more like this was my reaction to amateur is there was just something about like this exists in a world that I want my art to be in that this other very popular thing that I'd seen five times in the theater and loved a lot is is in a different world from it and it really felt like this is really important to me so I don't I don't remember how I would research you know what were the important Hal Hartley movies or not but I certainly remember seeing Simple Men and it has a Sonic Youth song and it being like holy shit this is the most like my whole life's coming together now Sonic Youth the movie I like you know all of that and Simple Men was the one I, I really loved in high school and then at some point I rented Surviving Desire and made a dub of that and that became just such an important formative movie to me. John, what's we're talking about this, like people are familiar with this film when this is probably the most obscure movie we've talked about on the podcast by far. What's the story of Surviving Desire apart from she's writing a story and he's not going to write like when she writes, <laughs> it's, uh, I believe you are sincere and good at heart. She's not going to like very simple setup. Uh, Martin Donovan, star of Trust, uh, co-star of Simple Men, other Hal Hartley films, Flirt, plays a teacher, who uh, literature teacher at the college, which is actually Marist College here in Poughkeepsie. And he is a literature teacher teaching Dostoevsky, but he is obsessed with just this one passage that he goes over and over again which uh, he won't move forward from it. He just, you know, wants to obsess over this passage. The kids want more information, trivia, things that'll help them pass the final exam. And so they're all incredibly <laughs> frustrated with him. Uh, and then the other, the other thing that's uh, distracting him is that he's infatuated with one of his students, a uh, young woman. Infatuation. Sorry, this is, a, this is a movie that... I know inside and out, like every single line in this movie. I just, I know this movie so inside and out. So when you say something like that, uh, just the whole time, it's going to be hard for me to not, to not quote it constantly. Infatuation. You're doomed. Okay. <laughs> but that's the setup. He's, you know, infatuated with this, this girl wants uh, to get into a relationship with her and uh, his friend, Henry, this is pre-Henry Fool, you know, they always say, you know, Hal Hartley, Hal is, you know, uh, a derivative of the of the name Henry. So the great Matt Malloy plays Henry, his friend, who is maybe a little bit of a Hal Hartley surrogate because of that name, uh, is kind of the uh, side character who, you know, other things happen to. But that's really the simple setup of this movie. And like you said, it's 50 some minutes long and it's, you know, moves along very briskly and it's very satisfying. <laughs> John, at, right up front, can you answer this question? Was Marguerite de Ross a lesbian? <laughs> do you know? Do you know the answer to that? That was That's a, funny... a paradox. <laughs> That's a, was Marguerite de Ross a lesbian? Is a line in the movie. There's a lot of funny throwaway lines, and I remember in high school being like who's Marguerite de Ross? I need to look up who this person is. And then later on, assuming she was a lesbian because of the line in this movie for many, many years. And just, you know, this movie just takes me back in so many ways to being like a 16, 17 year old. And just like the pre-internet era where like, you heard of interesting music because it was in a movie you like, you know, like I bought a Yola Tango album because there's a poster for it on their, on their wall in this, you know, and just no way to find out about anything about Marguerite Delas, who she was, 
you know, how if was she a lesbian? It's just like this completely different era of knowledge gaining. You know, well, it's D- Dostoevsky too. Yeah, Dostoevsky staring at the book cover where he reads the lines about uh, illusion right? Like, uh, I can't remember the exact lines of that, but being like, what book is he reading it from? And then later on reading The Gods Are a Thirst and being like, holy shit, it's the book from Surviving Desire that I could never figure out. Ignorance is a necessary condition of human happiness. We're almost entirely ignorant of ourselves, absolutely of others. In ignorance, we find our bliss. In illusions, our happiness. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. What were you going to say, Marcus? No, even in the late 90s, early, early aughts, just because like the internet existed, there was so much misinformation there too. Like so much shit sent you in the wrong direction. Looking back on it, like once I got a little older and, and there were more resources, it was like, oh, the website I went to in 2001, 2002, they didn't know what they were talking about. They were just making stuff up. Like this isn't even, these aren't the right liner notes to this one album. This isn't the right name to the song. This wasn't the song used in that movie. This wasn't the, you know, so yeah. you saying that reminded, because I'm like, a couple of years younger than you guys, I'm still in the same, you know, whatever the word is, but I do remember relying heavily on the internet my senior year and like freshman year, senior year of high school, freshman year of college, and then years later going like, oh, they're totally wrong about so much stuff that they just have out there. And a lot of people go to this website. So when did you, like how, what era did you see this movie? Like what, what, when did you start to get into Hal Hartley seriously? Cause you're somebody, we have you on the episode cause you're a big Hal Hartley fan. You're like- I am. One of- yeah, and, and it's funny because subconsciously he's followed me, like I said, since I was a kid seeing Trust on television. And then a year later through some weird- school project i ended up going to the theater to see simple men which is right up the street from my house the amherst cinema um i've told the story i've got to tell the story to, i told the story to bill sage in person and then i hung out with him again like weeks later and he told he had me tell his friends this story which i thought was really cool how i had to do a um, school project where i had to write i had to draw up a fake movie poster for a movie that didn't exist and i did it and my dad just happened to walk by my room and he was like what are you doing and i was like i'm making up a fake movie poster and he's like that's not what movie posters look like you have like you know a sign siskel and ebert says this and at the bottom there's the credits and all this stuff you just drew like a, a rectangle with like people on it and my dad was like go up put your jacket on walk up the street like this is how close the movie theater was it was on on amity street my street same side of my street go put your jacket on walk up the street go to amherst cinema um and at the time this was a one movie theater amherst cinema has since expanded but it was just a one screen theater and it was simply it was a poster for simple men and i looked at it the you know it's just you know, uh, Robert John Burke and Bill Sage just kind of sitting, white background, simple man on the top. And then I walked that's, back home. That's a terrible poster, though. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's a but really still, one of the worst. <laughs> it, it was better than it was better than what I what I my eleven year old self had drawn. I don't yeah. know what about it. So I then I was like, "Can I go?" And I, I went back home and I was like, "Dad, can I go watch the movie?" And he was just like, "What is it?" I was like, "I don't know, something men like basic guys." I don't. Know. I, I said you know the, the name wrong. And <laughs> the basic like, boys. Can I go see the basic boys? And this is funny because it ties in kind of to what John was saying. My dad like walked with me to the theater and he was like the, the woman who worked at the ticket counter. He's like, my son wants to watch this movie. I don't want to, I, I don't want to, I see it's rated R. Like, is there any like crazy graphic stuff? She's like, no, it's just about these two brothers on the run from the police, which is like 
not true. I mean, I guess <laughs> so the older brother, like that's what I said, the older brother kind of, sort of, but he's not even necessarily in the run. He's kind of taking his time for someone on the run. But anyway. It's, it's a movie about terminal moraines. That's yeah, what exactly. it's really about. Which yeah, nobody, uh, nobody's no, running in the Harley movies. <laughs> my dad would have uh, appreciated, my dad, uh, uh, a Queen's born and bred guy who would have appreciated that, that Queen's line. But my dad was like, all right, I mean, you've seen like, Deer Hunter and Apocalypse Now and Taxi Driver. I mean, whatever. I mean, this seems harmless. So he let me watch it. And then I came home and he was like, so how was it? And I was describing and I remember specifically like my 11 year old self going, they would do stuff like, yes, hello, what are you doing? Uh, Like I was like mimicking that Hal Hartley style of acting to my dad. And he was just like, all right. Um, (laughs) And then, but consciously in college around this is my fourth year. I was in a five-year program. For, it was architecture. Um, if you want to credit a degree, you have to go for five years. It's not four. So my fourth year, so we don't say freshman, sophomore, gym, we say years. So fourth year, I was at Blockbuster and I saw um, the VHS tape for um, No Such Thing. And I just remember being like, what the hell? I don't know, whatever. It's 99 cents. I'll just buy it. So I just blind bought it, watched it. I really liked it. And then at that point, you know, I was like 21, 22 at the time. So then I looked up, you know, Hal Hartley looked it up on the internet and then Simple Men popped up and then Trust popped up. And I was like, oh, this guy. And then that's when it all kind of clicked. I always forget that no such thing. I can never remember it's not called Monster. I always forget it's not called Monster anymore. Right. That he had to change it because of Monsters, Inc. Right. Um, that's and- crazy, though, to hear that that's so it was so late for you, Marcus. I mean... I know, like you said, you are, you, you're much, will be younger than we are, but like, I remember by the time I knew how Hartley was and we were well into college, like Henry Fool coming out in theaters was like an event, you know? It was yeah, like, I, I, know that. yeah, I actually, I, I actually had worked for him by the time Monster had right. came out and went up to him. I saw a preview screening at the DGA and went up and talked to him after it for a bit. That's how late in the process it was for me. Yeah, yeah that's I, when I met him too. I the aforementioned Iris Khan and introduced me to him at that screening. <laughs> It's uh, yeah, I completely missed Henry Fool, another Queen's movie. Um, but then, shortly after discovering No Such Thing, uh, I had like one. I did my thesis year. Then I, I moved to New York, and then just as I moved to New York, uh, me and you and everyone we know came out. And every review, everything online, everybody was just like, "Oh, she ripped off Hal Hartley's style," which not exactly, but I could see why someone would say that. And then I was like, oh, yeah, Hal Hartley, no such thing. And then I went to TLA Video uh, in the West Village, um, and I sought out Henry Fool. And that's a movie that I watched over and over and over again. Went to return it. Um, and then they had a, the DVD in the used section, the, the, the old Bare Bones Surviving Desire DVD at TLA Video. So as I was returning Henry Fool... I saw Surviving Desire and I remember reading about it online because there was a website up at that point and I was like, oh, it's like a few bucks, so I'll just buy it. And I still have that DVD to this day. And then it's it's funny because I watched Surviving Desire a lot then, so I would have been 22, 23 at this time. And I remember at the time of that movie, I was in a similar situation in terms of like dumb infatuation, you know, with someone. Yeah. And then it's like... I was, I was talking to Chris off record the other day about how like revisiting this movie at different points in your life, it, it gives me different feels. It's like when I was in my 20s, it's like, oh, I know what Martin Donovan's going through. And then like in my 30s, it's like, you know, oh, the female character, she's kind of, she kind of sucks. 
And then now that I'm 40, it's like I can look at it from afar and it's like they both kind of frustrate me. Both characters frustrate the hell out of me. But I still love the movie. It's just, I, you know, it's like, dude, you're putting in, you're putting in, you're putting in too much. Matt great. Oh, well, Matt Malloy is, he's a living legend. But, well, that's what, um, that's, this is a movie that's so hard for me to talk about because I know it so well and it looms so large in my imagination that to me, because of this movie and in the company of minutes, like Matt Malloy is one of the biggest things. Right, you know what right, I mean? Right. Like Matt Malloy is like a titanically important actor in my head as opposed to like a character actor who is named Matt in Armageddon. You know what I mean? Right, like, right, like right, he's, right, right. do people even know who he is kind of thing? Whereas for me, uh, especially finding out like that Eckhart and Neil Abute like fucking boned him on In the Company of Men and like boxed him out of all of the press and stuff like that. And that it should have been his moment. And they oh, wow. were very intentionally like, we're going to Hollywood, you're staying back here and really left him behind. Like knowing he got wow. fucked in that way, it makes me like, such a Matt Malloy cheerleader, but he's so good in this movie. This movie is just hard for me to know how to grab the handle and present it to people because I know it so inside and out, you know, sure, I just, sure. it's, yeah. Like, John, don't you have a feeling? I know when we talk about it, you're like, Matt Malloy, he's one of the greats. And if you say that to even regular cinephiles, it seems nuts, right? Yeah, he's, a, he's funny a, oh, that happen. guy. He, he's on, oh, that guy status to like, every single person outside of this podcast, I think. <laughs> yeah. Because when it's you funny. look, okay, yeah. especially for me, specifically Marcus Penn, it's like, oh, he shows up in Todd Haynes movies, uh, Kelly Reichardt movies, Gus Van Zandt. So it's like, it's just like a... Frank Henenlotter. Oh, Frank Henenlotter movies. Oh, that's right. Basket, the, the Basket Case sequels, rather. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. But no, so even that, it, it's just one. And then like, to other people, he shows, oh, he's the, the, the scumbag lawyer and what's that MMA movie that... Uh, um, David Mamet Red made. Belt. Yeah. He's yeah. got the really bad wig wig on. Well, it's funny to even step back just in the Hal Hartley filmography where you think like, well, Matt Malloy is a big Hal Hartley player. He's in a that, bunch of well, movies. That, that, that too. But, yeah. but, but, but even in that context, you're like, well, this is his biggest role in Surviving Desire. He's, you know, barely in trust, you know, and I actually went back and watched Unbelievable Truth for the first time in quite a while this week. Uh, he does have a bigger role than I remembered, but it's funny how there are kind of parallels to his characters from Unbelievable uh, Truth and and this movie. How he kind of is oh, ends absolutely. up like on the street, you he's, know. He and he's, he's kind of a bum, but I I, I, I didn't mean to say it so like I gotta tell you guys, but but part of the reason this movie was so important to me in high school is my future that I feared was I was going to be either Matt Malloy's character or Martin Donovan's. And I was, I hated both of those futures for myself and they felt inevitable that it was going to be one or the other, that I was going to be like a graduate student who sort of putters around in school, fails out of it, gets a job in a bookstore, gets fired and is like living on the street. Or I was going to be like a college professor. (laughs) (laughs) Or I was going to be like a college professor, like teaching Dostoevsky to like a room full of kids that like I fucking hate it. That's part of the reason I didn't want to go to college at all is it was like, that'll avoid those tracks altogether. You know, not that I could have, but like the self-sabotage too. It was just like, those were the futures I was so worried about for myself being either of those people. I really, really didn't want to be either of those people in any way. And even, even now, everybody still encourages me 
to be Martin Donovan. It's just like, that's what everybody has always told me I should be my entire life. And I've always fucking hated it. You know, I was, you know, as soon as I graduate from college, the first three jobs I was offered, I didn't even search them down were to be professors, you know, and it was just like, I've got to get away from this. And then I end up, you know, working in a bookstore with Johnny Cribs and getting fired on the Martin Donovan track, Martin, uh, Martin Donovan track, John, you are definitely the Mary Ward to my Matt Malloy. I will say that. I was going to say, I was most worried about becoming Rebecca Nelson, Katie on the streets of Poughkeepsie <laughs> proposing to everyone who, pros- who uh, crosses my path. <laughs> I don't think you were worried about that at all, John. I don't think you were, you were worried about in that in any way, but it's like hard to, to approach this movie. I feel a little like, ask me questions guys about this movie. What do you want to know? Like, how do I get into it? Do you just want me to go into like trivia type stuff where, you know, Hal Hartley uh, did an opera called Soon that rehearsed at SUNY Purchase. uh, And I was a PA on it. I was, it was like basically just the actors, the producer, production designer, Hal and, and the PAs, me and and a friend of ours named Felicito. And I did that and I worked for him and it was like a dream come true to be on set. One thing I noticed this time watching the movie, John, what's the name of the bookstore? I never noticed it. Rosenzweig Books. Steve Rosenzweig is production designer in all this oh, films. Wow. Yeah, who of course would have been making the little book badges. That would have been probably fallen into his purview anyway. <laughs> so yeah, but I like got to meet him and all of that. And I remember like on the, the first day, like standing around being a PA and they were all super nice. And it was all his guys. It was, it was you know. Uh, Thomas J. Ryan's. In Thomas J. Ryan, Alina Lowenson, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, uh, all of the people that you want, like these people like that I had occupied massive places in my imagination sure, were sure. there and just being like Alina Lowenson offered me a piece of gum. If you don't know who Alina Lowenson and as you probably know her best as the Romanian gymnast from the Seinfeld episode. If you don't, if shit doesn't pop into your head who she is, that's who Alina Lowen is. You saying she's that makes you. me think of like, or that, but it's like at this point, whoever's listening, it's like, you know, goddamn well who she is. Like when, you know, when you, it's like, you know exactly who she is. She's well, another a, super Hartley regular. That's um, a good launching point, you know. though, because, you know, it's funny to consider this my favorite Hal Hartley movie because there's no Alina Lowenson, you know, there's no Adrian Shelley. And Mary Ward is this is the only film that she would do with him. But she is excellent. I love her in this movie. I mean, Marcus, you know, I agree that, you know, that her character, it's like, oh, you get frustrated with like what she's doing and like how she's kind of just using. It's a testament, to her, it's a testament to, to her performance. She does it well. Well, she that's what looks amazing. And she's just captivated. Yeah, yeah she does. Yeah, she she's does. she's fantastic. And it, and what and I had asked, it's funny when I, I was at a party with Hal Hartley and I had mentioned that this is my favorite of his movies. And he was really taken aback. He was like, oh, like that one's that one's not any good was sort of his response. I was like, how could you possibly think that? And he said, I really wanted to cast Parker Posey in the woman's role and they, they, they wouldn't let me do it. They wouldn't let me cast her in this role. So in fact, when Hub Moore's on the street, you know, serenading the woman, that's Parker Posey standing by the uh, yeah, phone the, booth the dancing. Booth, yeah. yeah, by the telephone booth dancing. And you can completely tell it's her. Up until that moment, there was no way of knowing. Uh, maybe she's credited on it. But um, but it was very surprising to hear that that colored his decision so much, especially because I agree. I think Mary Ward is fantastic in it. Absolutely fantastic. And just yeah, to I don't keep... know if Parker Posey could have played this character. Maybe the friend. 
it almost seems like Julie Sukman is like doing a Parker Posey impression a little bit. Yeah, I can't see Mary anyone other than her being this uh, being this character, being Sophie. I, I really can't. I mean, yeah. I love Parker Posey. I really do. She's great, but I just. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. And she's in like, Mary Ward. What a weird filmography. And it's weird because very, without, having very to, weird. without having to look it up, I, it's weird how she's not in a lot of stuff and the things that she's in, a lot of it, she's only in for like a scene or two, but I still know that it's just like, I have oh yeah, been... she's in the one scene in Smoke or hanging with the homeboys. Yeah. It's like, oh, I know that she's in these things. The and in, Oh, she's in Smoke. I forgot that. I was going to say the At only the other thing, end. the only other thing I ever remembered her in is I was watching Charles in Charge one day and she was this exact character on an episode of Charles in Charge. She was like a woman that Charles was like trying to sleep with and she was like an elusive like sort of flirt who left him in the dust it was very strange to see that but the weirdest part about my relationship to mary ward is this is a woman i had had you know a crush on inevitably in high school when you see a film you really like and there's like a cute as a button you know like intellectual girl and of course you're like i love this girl i'm immune to to be thinking of actresses that way anymore so it's sort of like embarrassing even to mention but when i was programming the repertory theater she worked there she got hired i was sitting in a meeting one day we were all sitting around the conference table and they introduced the new hire in the pr department and she got married and had a different last name or maybe she this ward was a pseudonym for the film but i looked over and it was mary and then whatever her new last name was, I can't remember now. And I was looking at her like, I think that's Mary Ward. That's got to be Mary Ward from Surviving Desire. And like, I couldn't get over it. I couldn't reconcile it. Somebody who's barely in anything had like intruded on my life from my fantasy space. It's very, very strange. And everybody was- the like, strangest thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. Yeah, wow. <laughs> it's so weird. And so weird that you never like got to know her at all or talk to her. Well, everybody time. was like, you should go tell her you're a huge fan of Surviving Desire. And I was like, I'm not fucking doing that. Like, what do you, like, that's the last thing I want to do is like, fanboy to somebody i have to work with like that is absolutely not working a, yeah okay a relationship i want and also because she was a very regular um like she was like a regular suburban wife lady her her husband was some rich guy and i remember the first conversation i had with her i barely ever talked to her she was taking her kids to a jonas brothers concert and me just being like this is not that person from that movie conclusively (laughs) i know it's not but this is not sophie sophie it's greek it means to know um it's just not not that it was it was so strange i just remember sitting down in that conference and looking at this person and being like how can this be true like yeah, so bizarre, so bizarre to have such a relationship to this movie, have this actor who nobody knows. It's not like Matt Malloy or Martin Donovan. Nobody knows she's famous in this very limited way. You know, nobody's going to recognize her. Like one of the only people in the world who would have cared about it was like there at that conference table. It's very strange, very, very strange. But ever since then, every girl you've been with, you expect her to be somewhat like her. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's just the way it is, John. Um, the, the pro- my my problem that. my problem is that I always want my tragedies to have a happy ending. No, um, I'm gonna say it's weird you're saying that because between like 2005, 2006, 2007, I definitely that was kind of my like. Uh, <laughs> Oh, Jesus. That was definitely kind of my, my, I don't want to say standard, but like that was kind of what and who I was look, it's, lo, 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 it's, looking for. It's interesting because I, when I watched this movie too, like she, I love her outfits so much. I love her clothes in this movie, it's a movie so much. And it's hard for me to separate, like, do I think those clothes are good because I like grew up loving this movie? Are they like legitimately great outfits? It's like, and I was thinking it's like Anna Karina and Pero LeFou level, like this is the best dressed woman in cinema history to me personally, you know, like exactly the style I like exactly. And it's like, is that because I saw both of those movies at a very formative time in my life and they like imprinted on my, like that's what stylish and interesting and cool is because of those movies or do I legitimately feel that way? And she's walking around in her little Gene Seberg from Breathless Haircut. It's just, it's very, Hal Hartley, I think unfairly early in his career got slammed as somehow like a Godard knockoff artist, right? Which I think is a really dumb and unfair slam of his work. But the comparisons are definitely there. I think he's, a lot of people claim to be influenced by Godard. You can actually see Godard influence without his personality being absorbed by Godard. He's completely his own thing, but you can see the way in which he's been touched by it. Yeah, so certainly characters sitting around reading books is uh, something he clearly borrowed from Godard. But well, I was also thinking when um, Martin Donovan wanders through the concert on the street, the way the shot is framed with him kind of finding himself in the middle of a live performance, even that is like the um, the shot in. Um, oh, Jesus Christ. What's what's the, the name of that movie? Um, Weekend. No, 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 no. In uh, it's like the shot in Every Man for Himself, where they walk through the car wash, and then there's revealed to be an orchestra playing in the car wash. Right? It's framed and put together in a very similar way to that shot in um in Every Man for Himself, which is written by the great Jean Claude Carrière. Um, but it's like you know the dance scene in in Simple Men always gets compared to the dance scene in Band of Outsiders, and I feel like that's kind of bullshit. The dance scene in this movie I've heard compared to Band of Outsiders and that's a total like give me a break. You know like unless it's just any dance scene in a movie unexpectedly is a Band of Outsiders homage. Yeah, I I was just going to say as someone who <laughs> gets into side-by-sides a lot it's like if you watch a lot of like I, I'm not going to call this Simple Man um, Band of Outsiders thing bullshit. I just think it's super obvious and it's just like I'm. T- I, I just wish folks would go a little deeper. Like in um, first name Carmen, there's a scene towards the end where her like they're struggling and fighting for the gun, and that reminds me of the scene in Amateur when Damien Young grabs the cop's gun and like little things like that. Like there's oh, yeah, so much yeah. more. There's so much more than just like oh three people dancing, two guys and a woman. Um, there, there's a lot of deep deeper shit in there. Some stuff that I don't even know because. I'm only like medium level knowledgeable about Godard, so I, I can't even imagine if if I was more like on expert level the kind of shit that I. But he doesn't. About. He doesn't yeah. lean into it. I think it really is stuff like 
I think it's like the Gene, like she has something about her that's very Gene Seberg and breathless to her in this movie. She just does. She has like a manner and a quiet and a haircut and sort of the way she carries herself and the way she's like sort of not wanting to be possessed by the main character and drawn into his story, you know, that she wants to be her own yeah. separate thing. I think that it, I think it does remind me of that. Um, it's just hard not to think, because like, if you take Surviving Desire out, there's like Godard character, like in, um, oh man, the short film, one of his two, uh, I think- Theory of Achievement? Theory of Achievement. There's like a Godard looking guy smoking the cigar. And then in No Such Thing, the, the scientist That's the uh, end, Nick Gomez, I think, right? It, uh, is Oh, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think Nick Gomez plays that part. Yeah, yeah and they the, had the, gone, the, the, for the, people the, who aren't deeply steeped, Nick Gomez and Hal Hartley yeah. had gone to SUNY Purchase together. They were one year apart, and Nick Gomez had edited a few of the early... No, no, no I know who Nick... Oh, I know who he is. I just uh, didn't, for I listeners, know like. I Marcus, for oh. listeners. But um, in No Such <laughs> Thing, the, the scientist that shows up in the end is so obviously supposed to be like a caricature of Godard. And then one of his later period short films, it's this like documentary style kind of somewhat experimental thing where he just kind of like, it's this like interview footage of Godard. Oh, what is it? It's on his, it's it's a Hal Hartley shorts volume two. Um, yeah. So it's like, there's like, I just think this is for any artist when he's literally, when he was dubbed the Jean-Luc Godard of Long Island, I think most artists, when that kind of stuff happens, it's like, oh, Jesus Christ, please don't like, Ugh. And then they kind of like, so it's one of those things like I'm sure, I mean, I've heard him say it. He loves Jean, Jean, Jean-Luc Godard, but he doesn't want to always be associated. You know, he has a great line about this whole comparative thing because Jim Jarmusch was another guy that Hal Hartley was immediately compared to. Uh, and he was just like, you know, hey, being compared to someone great, it's, 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 it's swell. But it's one of those things, too, where it's like there's this guilt and it's like you're automatically associated with someone who may not want to be associated with you. It's sometimes just kind of embarrassing to. Yeah, uh, which is which is which is what he did to his to Kevin Smith uh, famously, where Kevin Smith was like, Hal Hartley's a big influence. And Hal Hartley's response was like, oh, geez. And it caused Kevin Smith to, like, tear up his framed trust poster and disavow him forever. (laughs) <laughs> on the um it's on the unbelievable truth the, the original unbelievable truth dvd there's some great for something it's like a lot of his the dvds before they got repackaged and redone they do come off his bare bones but there's some really cool special features some interview stuff with him like his short films so that i think that, that like that's another thing i learned a lot about how hartley just through with dvds i was always big into commentary tracks the supplement i was i was the guy that that shit was made for Back in the early 2000s, the mid 2000s, like I, all, anything I cared this, about. I this watched. is the different eras we're in because I never owned any Hal Hartley on DVD. I owned VHSs oh, of all wow, these movies. Wow, wow. No, I had Henry Fool on VHS. And when we did a screening at this repertory theater that I was programming, Janet Maslin, who was doing the interview with him afterwards, uh, because she had given an incredibly positive New York Times review to Henry Fool. She didn't have a copy of it, so I had to loan her a, a VHS of it. But like, yeah, like this is this is all VHS. I don't think I've ever, I might own Unbelievable Truth on DVD, but I, I've never owned any of his stuff on DVD. Oh, I definitely had to circle back to get the DVDs on most. I didn't get trust until it had the later release and Simple Men I had to buy off eBay later on because yeah, I had the VHSs too. Yeah. I mean, it just reached a point where 
uh, you know, when I was so completely done with VHS that I wasn't watching them anymore, I also was not buying DVDs anymore. It's funny, my like physical media buying all stopped simultaneously in that way. <laughs> um, but with the references, you know, it's interesting, the on-screen references in this movie, like the books you can see at the bookstores, you know, or on the movie marquee, they're not Godard. It's Day of Wrath is showing on the movie marquee when you can see the movie marquee. There's posters for Sonic Youth and Yola Tango. It's, you know, Lillian Hellman's autobiography and Sir and Captain Sir Richard Francis Burton. Uh, you know, those are like the things you can see in it. It's Dostoevsky and, you know, um, Anatole France, Freud. Those are the people that he makes reference to in the film. And you never get him, you don't hear him called you know like the Dostoevsky of yeah, Long Island yeah, yeah, which yeah. I think is a legit uh, it's as legit as calling him the Godard he's definitely yes, very is. interested in faith and religion and the relationship between faith and love the, the way Dostoevsky between is. faith and love specifically is what they're the theme of this movie yeah and, and they're both obsessed with it yeah. It's funny, I guess uh, Day, Day of Wrath is definitely a step up from Arthur too, which is what's playing in Unbelievable Truth when they're hanging outside <laughs> of the theater. But uh, yeah, no, I, I, I love that the references are, you know, there. And we, I, you guys have talked before, I think, you know, in the previous uh, podcast episode you've done about Hal Hartley, the opening Dostoevsky quote that he reads again and again and again, I believe you are true and good at heart is you know chris i think you said you've been trying to find the translation that has that exact passage the way it's read in the movie and your theory i think is probably a good one that harley probably did his own translation or did his own kind of you know spin on it the way that i guess i don't know tarantino would do you know his own spin on you know when he rips off somebody's line from a yeah shogun's assassin yeah Yeah. um yes that was something when i was young i was obsessed with finding this exact translation of Brothers Karamazov because it's it's every edition I've been ever I've been able to find has it slightly different than the lines in these movies and I think I think he did do something with it or maybe he found a very old edition but this is my favorite one I think it's the best translation I've heard is the thing about it uh, is that when I read other translations I'm not as satisfied with how the language seems and I don't know if that's just because he's repurposed it for his uses but I think it's better within the context of the book I wish I wish this was what it said in other translations but just to you know go back to Day of Wrath for a comparison too you know, it's nobody would ever call him the Dreyer of Long Island, but that movie Day of Wrath, it's about fate and overcoming doubt. It's about women and their sort of witchcrafty spell that they put on people as well. And it feels like a really obvious thing to compare it to. And the way Dreyer shoots, the the rigidity of his camera, the way he blocks things, uh, the way he edits things has much more in common with Hal Hartley than Godard does normally. Hal Hartley's not walking around with handheld camera. You know, he does some measure of jump cuts, but it's not, it doesn't, when you watch a Hal Hartley movie, the aesthetic and the style feels nothing like Godard to me. It feels yeah, more like Dreyer. Or even a French director, I'd say he's more Brisson than, than Godard. Oh man, I was, I was just going to leave. 1,000%. The first time I, I, first time I saw him speak, this was at IFC, and it was someone in the audience like mentioned something about Godard. And in in like I've now seen him speak a bunch of time in person. Like I don't I haven't been as close to him as Chris. But you know, the way he it, it was like in a nice way, 
he was like, you know, I like other stuff than Godard. Like the way he said it was just kind of like, all right, enough. But don't you guys also but think it's like think uh, Bresson is doing Dreyer? Don't don't you think to some and, degree? But what I was said, what I was what I was trying to say is like in in this Q and A, he started listing off like how much he loved, you know, Ordet, how much he loved um, Jesus Diary of a Country. He was naming off some of his like favorite movies and his favorite films, and he was just like, you know, yeah, you know, I love Godard, but it's like there's other stuff that I love very much, and I remember that always kind of like. <laughs> I don't know what the word, it always like stuck with me because it's like, it's more so one of those things where like, if so much of what you do, like you're when, when you're into so many things and then for years, especially people who don't even know you, just box you into this one thing and just like, wait a minute, there's other shit that I like. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's not just this one guy. I'd be frustrated too. It's like, especially if you... The, well, although the the, the Brisson thing is, is super... Anyone who would question how the Hal Hartley Brisson comparative whatever i, think I only question it in the, the sense the thing, the, the, i only the question it in the sense of that i think brisson is heavily influenced by dryer dreyer well, i think brisson's that, yes. a softening of dreyer in a lot of ways right it's a softening yeah. of that rigidity and i think yeah. that you know by proxy you know how hartley is you know taking after brisson more than dreyer just the way I'd, I'd say something that we didn't bring up is that alan rudolph you know was a big Godard fan and took a lot of Godard type, you know, aesthetic in his films. I feel like Hal Hartley is more takes a lot more of Rudolph taking after Godard than he does straight Godard. Oh God, I I hate Rudolph so much. You know that that it's just like, please don't tell me that's true. Please don't tell me you have an interview where Hal Hartley's talking about loving Alan Rudolph. Is that true, John? Oh, definitely. Yeah, in those early stuff. There's definitely things that how in Unbelievable Truth the the repetition line. The, you know, so so what do you say? I know what you need. You know, that girl's yeah. crazy. That, that that's sense. yeah, that's from Alan Rudolph. That's and if, something that he would do. Yeah, and if you haven't seen a Hal Hartley movie, go out and see them. They're very, they're comedies that are extremely dry and self consciously pretentious. Um, they are they are intending self-consciously to be about the big things in life, to be about um God and faith and love and trust and family and the meaning of existence uh, about literature, about the flow of history, you know, all of these different kinds of things very unabashedly. And their comedy is a very dry acknowledgement, I always feel like, of this is all absurd what he's talking about because humanity is fundamentally uh, absurd in some way that our caring about these things humiliates us in some way, but we still care about them, that they're still the most important things in the world, you know? Yeah, and going back to what you were saying about, you know, some of your own personal hangups, you know, with the reason that this movie affected you uh, back when you were about to go into college, a lot of this movie, a big theme of it is, you know, is knowledge helpful are, are books any good, you know? Knowing like, is you know, not enough. Right, exactly. And I think As that's a, a huge thing in this. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I just, you're absolutely right. I remember going into college and being nobody. I remember in that like film theory class, you might have, but you didn't speak up. Nobody had heard of Roberto Rossellini. Nobody had even heard his name before, right? In this film class. And I had seen like six of his movies and I couldn't believe it. But at the same time, I was a total um, socially maladjusted outcast uh, like 
nerd loser who just like just wanted a girl to like me kind of thing back then who just like the having all of this knowledge didn't do anything to make my life easier or make me happier if anything it alienated me more you know that it that it was just a, a source of unhappiness constantly to know shit that other people didn't you know it it was always it was very alienating but and it Chris, was also sh- and it felt knowledge provide solace it, well exactly but it also felt like i'm an asshole for wanting to know these things too there was also a pretentiousness to like my behavior by like yes this that i know this will mean something to me too where you know will make me important will make my life matter will make me meaningful that i have this knowledge in some way and that's exactly what you're saying it's an interplay between the characters that knowing this shit matters somehow and will will somehow redeem and add focus and meaning to my life you know when a lot of the movie is about like it just it just doesn't matter what you know you have to still go live it <laughs> you know what i mean yeah you have to be yeah, able to apply it to your life uh, i was just gonna say that's been hitting me like a ton of bricks these last few years it had nothing to do with movies but um even when you live it it almost <laughs> jesus christ it doesn't matter i know that sounds a little no but um yeah now more than ever just from i'm not not, no yes but i'm not i'm not i'm not gonna get into it yes yes, but i'm not gonna get into it um just things about race things about yeah i'm not gonna get into it but yeah but then when you live it it's just like what what's the point so yeah well but also just i don't even mean like you've got to live your knowledge i mean you've got to go live your life you can know that you are headed into a tragedy and that's one of the great things about this story is i don't think martin donovan's character he's given every warning sign that he's doing something dumb to pursue a relationship with this student who's clearly not that interest into him or interested in it and making bad both personal and professional decisions but he's sort of helpless to do anything else right yeah, yeah. and um and on the flip side his the reason the students are angry at him, and this has always been a huge influence on me, what the, this movie sort of illustrates, he's reading these paragraphs over and over again that are beautiful paragraphs. John, do you have them written down? Uh, from the bookstore? No, the uh, I Believe You Are Sincere. At I don't art. have it written down, no. Yeah. I, you know, you know, Jordy for a while ago uh, picked up a book for me. It was one of the um, uh, projections books, and it had the full screenplay in it, and a fantastic Jonathan Demi interview. It's an amazing book. I tore this place apart. I could not find it. I was looking all over for it. I'm really pissed off that that might be missing. All I got is is Simple Men and Trust right here. That's the only one I got. Yeah. Um, but so he's teaching this class, right? And he's going over and over the paragraphs that are these beautiful, very densely packed with wisdom and intelligence and irony kind of stuff. And he really wants to learn from the writing and all of the students are like why are we bothering this with this why are we doing this over and over and over again right and why can't you give us things for the exam and he has a real relationship to the book right at the end of the movie when he's defeated he gets up in front of the class and tells them the biographical information about Dostoevsky 
that you would hear in a regular class. He's born on this day. His father was this kind of guy. Uh, he was uh, put on trial and almost executed once. He married a lady, blah, blah, blah right? And that's what the defeat is, is giving people this biographical information as a replacement for connection to the artwork, as giving people this sort of trivial, trivia type information as a replacement for an interaction and relationship and, and ex exploration of the material. And that always really stuck with me. That's why I'm somebody who really doesn't want to know behind the scenes stuff, I'm very obsessed with staying as much in the material as possible because of this movie. Also, Stephen Jay Gould talks a lot about this, that you should never read somebody's uh, paraphrasing of what an original source says. Uh, you should always go back and read it for yourself because they're almost always wrong or mischaracterizing it in some way, that you're just always better going back to the source rather than somebody's interpretation of it, you know, rather than somebody's analysis of it, that the source is always going to be better. That's why it's the source, you know, that's yeah. why the source is famous and not the interpreter. You well, know, that's something we had talked about even on the quiz show episode that we did with Martin recently was, you know, the difference between knowing things and, you know, considering it smart to know about Dostoevsky's father and his epilepsy, which is, by the way, is a great joke where the girl gets upset and runs out of the room when he mentions <laughs> Dostoevsky's epilepsy. But and, and then being able to connect with the artwork and apply it in some way to your life, that passage I had uh, quoted earlier one about uh, in, in ignorance we find our bliss and illusions our happiness uh, even pops up in the dialogue later in the film between Katie and Henry where um, he says because the, the original quote was we're almost entirely ignorant of ourselves absolutely of others and Katie says does anyone ever really know anyone else and Henry says I go a step further and ask does anyone ever really know themselves you know so we're actually hearing like the things the knowledge that are coming from these books from these characters finding its way into the situations of the film, which I think is just fantastic. I love that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And even just you talking about it, it's easy. Like this movie is funny and goofy. Like this is, this is like a broad comedy, you know, that's another thing like where he slaps the bartender kind of thing. It, it's, it's a movie that's very, perceptive insightful about relationships like when she lies to her roommate uh on the phone about who she's meeting for a drink and it really bothers him that's the kind of thing that that happens in real life that does stick in your crawl you know kind of thing um but it's also about the sort of grand how does an interaction like that work into the grand themes of literature throughout history in cinema throughout history to the grandest human experience and then it's got this goofball comedy and then interpretive dance scenes and martin donovan sticking his head out the window and barking when he's angry you know it's just like such a it's just such a she left her fragrance in here <laughs> get out what about my toast um but just the timing i think it's understated too that like in anything timing is a big thing with how hartley and also timing timing is a big thing with comedy that's just kind of like one-on-one stuff but so just the the dialogue with oh, i forgot her name the the mom from um trust and from trust. And, and, and matt yeah. and matt malloy when they're kind of going back, 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 back and forth that's such a like timing thing or the intro scene always with the nagging to love the cherish to love the cherish yeah. from when he uh 
when he throws the book, when the guy tackles him, like all that stuff is like just comedic timing. And I think that's just kind of a little yeah. understated when it comes to how Hartley, how everyone, there's these like just choreographed movements. They're not always dancing, but they are still choreographed. Well, watching him on set, right? He did a bunch of things that like, now I know as a director, you're not supposed to do. He would tell actors, walk to this here, count to three in your head, say your line, turn your head on this line, turn your head slower, more slowly, say that line faster, say that slower. He hyper controls every aspect of the choreography in the movement in a way that like directors just do not do normally to a point where it's sort of like, um, I wonder what it was like him directing like Julie Christie or Aubrey Plaza. You know what I mean? Like he really, really directs these things very very carefully and he doesn't edit them in a normal way other he doesn't shoot for coverage the shots are very composed in such a way that they don't have to be cut around frequently you know there's obviously exceptions like the the scene at the cafe at the end it's just bouncing between you know medium shots and close-ups like a regular scene would but a lot of the time it's people will come into frame sit down say their lines get up and leave the frame cut to another shot in a way that would have just been filmed in matching close-ups and over the shoulders in a regular movie where he's cutting between these sort of blocks of shots to create these very strange rhythms. And then the performances that he gets out of people work in, in tune with those rhythms that he's creating by the shooting and editing. <laughs> it's always, it's also every time I watch one of his movies and before I made, I made a feature film in 2000. Four is that when we did those, John? Uh, and I made the mistake. It was a Takeshi Mieke homage. That's what the script was. And I made the mistake of watching Amateur right before we filmed. And just like his approach to shooting, it's just so for a low budget filmmaker, it's so tempting and so beautiful. You just think I I could do that. I could shoot a movie like that. You know, like this is such a perfect way to make a movie. I could do something like this. And I know he's a big influence on me so that that it's logical that I would have that. But just the way he would film things of he's just going to put the camera behind a guy sitting on the stoop, Martin Donovan, with his head leaned forward for him delivering a monologue, which is the in fact, the exact opposite of how 99% of people are going to shoot that they're going to have the camera a full 180 on the other side of him, you know, position I absolutely adore in this film is when he confronts her at the outdoor cafe. And it cuts it's cuts back and forth between them. They're never in the same shot together. Yeah. Know? No, they're it's, not. They're not. It's really gorgeous until he goes to touch her hand and she doesn't let him, you know, and this like, you know, disconnect between them now that she has, you know, cut him out of life. And she's never better in the movie than in that scene where it's just her and those looks that she looks up and gives him, she's given she's given to us because you know they're not sharing a frame, they're coming right at us. It's just a beautiful scene, beautiful John, composition. Have we never talked about that hand shot before? He he I can't when I was talking to him once, he mentioned that he thought that was the most important shot in the movie and he couldn't make the movie work until he went back and shot it as an insert. That's not Martin Donovan and Mary Ward's hands in it, right? Yeah, that he was like, he was like, there's something missing from this scene and he realized it's exactly what you're saying that the reaching over and trying to touch her and her refusing it was the most important like the movie didn't work until he put that shot in right and so it's it's funny that you picked up on that maybe he said it in interviews or other things but uh but it was 
that's very <laughs> gold star for perceptiveness, John. <laughs> Mr. How Hartley agrees with you on it's that fun, one. It is funny that a lot of the How Hartleyisms, the things that we think of, you know, being so How Hartley, like the impromptu dancing and the uh, the cutting of you know the way he cuts dialogue together, uh, are really most of it's from his short films that are not as famous as the big ones. It's, they're from Ambition, like the the slow motion, you know, re- repetition of the slow motion at the end of Am- Ambition is when I always think of like, that's a signature Hal Hartley moment. But people who've only seen the Long Island trilogy and Henry Fool and Florida aren't going to know that moment, even though I, th- I think of it as like, that's a huge Hal Hartley moment there. And a lot of things from this movie, I consider like the most Hal Hartley moments of any of his films. So it's again, it's just funny that this one isn't uh, is just isn't better known or better respected by the filmmaker himself. His his stories have a tendency to be sprawling, too. And in his short films in this one, I feel like it's compressed down like like novella length is perfect for him. You know what I mean? Like a lot of his movies, even when I love them, they're 10 minutes too long they feel like they lose their way in the second half. Yeah. You know what I mean? A lot of the time they feel like simple men, trust, definitely unbelievable truth. The second half feels like diffuse in the way their first halves feel sharp to a point where I think of it as has his style and I like it, but then you see surviving desire and it's so his ideas compressed to like novella length and you go this is perfect for him this is absolutely perfect story size for him this is what all his stories should be they shouldn't be about you know bomb throwing anarchist former baseball players you know what i mean or like the way our life changes after our modeling career takes off like they actually they should stay compressed in some way not that they should or shouldn't i love all those movies i don't mean to speak badly of them but you guys agree right that they sort of get diffuse in their second halves right absolutely agree no 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 i i no I guess, like, we're talking about, like, fake, like, recent stuff that, I mean... No, no. I mean, he's one of those guys that, like, it's Henry Fool and then it's over. I don't even... We don't even need to talk about them. Well, you're talking to to the no such thing uh, guy here. That one's one's fine. That one's um, fine. Yeah. I also... Yeah... uh, I mean, I'm not going to impose. I mean, there's there's I'm not going to impose my personal story. I mean, if you think it's fine, that's then yeah. Um, no, but it, I was going to say too. I I rewatch Ned Rifle every once in a while. It's actually it, and but that's a movie. I don't know. It's like because it's connected to well, it's connected to Fake Grim, but it's also because it's connected to Henry Fools. Like, is that why I like it so much? Plus, it has the cameos from every doesn't, generation of how, of of how Hartley people. Doesn't so it bother you? I like it. You know. Doesn't it bother you and Ned Rifle though that they don't bring Gowie, Gary Sauer back? Doesn't that bother you? Wait, he's who, 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 he's the uh, he's the boyfriend from Unbelievable Truth and Trust and the guy in the oh, classroom right. in oh this. Oh my gosh! Oh yeah, yeah. not not uh, and for the gas station. I, I know and, exactly what you're thinking about. Yeah. 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 yeah he's great. Yeah. Um, but, um, no, I think I think that's about. good advice. Sorry. No. no, but going back to what you were saying, no, just because from Unbelievable Truth um, up through No Such Thing. You think the second half of those movies are as sharp as the first half? I do. I was just going to say everything, every start to finish is just perfect to me. Well, I get flirt, flirt. Oh, yeah. I think they're, well, here's the Um, funny thing. I think they're perfect too. And now you've sort of backed me into a corner where it's like, I'm not saying they're not perfect. I'm saying that. I think you're trying to say You're not trying to like, you already said it. You're not trying to like speak bad of his, you're not trying to, this isn't meant to be an insult. I, I, I get that. But it's just one of those things where, 
it's all just one thing. I don't I don't even look at his movies in like segments. I'm talking about his feature films. It's all just one great thing. Well, actually, yeah. this, this leads to something I actually wanted to ask you guys. You know, this movie has a great ending. You know, Martin Donovan lying in the gutter, you know, talking yeah. to the guy off screen. It's fantastic. What's your favorite Hal Hartley ending of all his movies? Uh, wow, they're all good. Damn. They're good because you immediately he, he go a, trust. Great, great. Because you say trust. And then I think, well, Henry Fool has got to be the best final shot. Yeah, right? it, might be an, yeah, it might be Henry Fool. But trust is amazing, too. The final shot of trust is is so phenomenal. Yeah, and simple men don't. But move. yeah, him resting. Oh, you know? don't move, which is the exact way it starts. Yeah, yeah, and him just lying in Karen Silas's bosom. Yeah, see, that's a great. Uh, oh man, I can't name just one. Yeah, yeah. it's simple men. He's great. great. <laughs> <laughs> it's simple men. Um, it's yeah, it's funny. That's that's funny, John. What's your pick? This one's great too. I, it's hard. Yeah, I had to probably would just default to say simple men, although I love amateur. Yes, I know this man is a great ending. But um, <laughs> amateur is a mess. I love amateur because it was I love my the first. Ending, but I love the yeah. ending. But uh, but I I love this ending. I love him in the gutter. He's I'm just gonna hang out in the gutter here for a little bit. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, and, Do you and know how to get and to the back water? To her saying, "Can I help someone? Can anybody help with the?" Da, 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 yeah. da, da, da. that's another thing for people who don't know we've talked a lot about the soundtrack stuff he uses how hartley composes the scores for his own movies as well uh generally under the pseudonym ned rifle and it has very memorable music although that piece isn't isn't uh, his piece that uh no. that french song is not is not his piece um is do you feel like we're over, like, <laughs> are we approaching this correctly? Are we digging it into correctly as three people who are like Hal Hartley aficionados? Are we explaining to people why they should see it? Which when you tell, I never recommend his movies to anybody that, ever. I, I was going to bring this up. I was going to say, damn, I can't believe you brought this up, Chris. I was going to say, no, I've recommended Hal Hartley but certain specific ones, never Surviving Desire. Surviving Desire feels like a movie that's made for the people on this podcast, which is, it's a weird, selfish <laughs> thing to say, because no matter how, um, I don't know how Harley personally, but I feel like most filmmakers, they, you know, they'd like their their films and their work to be seen by lots of people. So I, I, I'm not, you know, I'm, and I'm an only child too, and I'm very much a like, this is me, this is for me only, but like, Surviving Desire is one of the movies that I love that I just wouldn't recommend to anyone unless I know that they've seen a good solid 75% of Hal Hartley's movies, and that's including short films. Oh, really? This is the one that I feel I, like as the starter. I'd I say guess. this before. But then I also think about people who I know personally who I've recommended, and, and I guess that's part of what's kind of swaying my description. I'm always like, you know... Simple Men, Henry Fool, like the the hits or like the, I'm using air quotes for people listening, the, like the popular ones. But so, no, I would never recommend Surviving Desire until I know that they're kind of, someone is versed. Oh, really? It wouldn't be an, an, an entry point for me. See, I would do it as an entry point because I like it more than most of his shorts. Um, and it's shorter than the features. And he's such a specific flavor. I don't know. I, I don't know. That's interesting. John, do you recommend him to people? In general, I never recommend him to anyone. I just don't. No, I just I, I don't know way too many people who don't like him, people who I'm even friends with. So I, I know he's an acquired taste. So 
for me, Hal Hartley is we're the, we're the gang, man. We're the guys who found Hal Hartley on our own, and that's the way to do it, you know. So yeah. I, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even know how to like, you know, recommend somebody. I don't even know what the right one. To start I'm just assuming be. if someone Hal Hartley's not some random guy. You, I, I'm assuming someone worked their way to him and saw his name brought up, and they were kind of in the realm where it's like they saw a Brisson film, they saw a Jim Jarmusch well, film, they saw a Godard, like, like here's it, something. It, he's not a blind. He's not a blind. Here's here's the thing that's so weird about Hal Hartley that I don't think people young people will understand in the early 90s he was in his he had this moment where he would get mentioned alongside Jarmusch and Linkletter and yeah. and yeah. Spike Lee as like the vanguard of American independent cinema there were like a handful of American independent cinema filmmakers all of which who have endured in a much larger capacity than him that he was one of the guys he was he was mentioned without compunction alongside Rick Linkletter and Jarmusch. That was just, that was the level he was at in his moment. Um, and it, and it really, he really was at that level and he's completely um, immolated. His reputation is, is completely disappeared. And I think part of that is he never, uh, he never sort of developed as cult, as much of a cult around him as Jarmusch, who started incorporating famous people into his stuff. You know, you very quickly have Jenna Rollins and Winona Ryder and people like that in Jim Jarmusch movies, you Bill know, Murray. Bill Murray, exactly. Johnny Depp. Johnny yeah. Depp, right? But he has yeah, that kind of thing. And Linkletter goes on and becomes very, very Hollywood oriented in a lot of yeah. ways. Well, Jarmusch well, too, though, is just like got that effortless coolness about him that's going to draw people to him. I mean, hardly even his cool characters, his Martin Donovans and his Robert Burks, are do- are kind of dorky. You yeah. know, like they're not they're, they're there's coolness to them, but it's also off. They're squares. By, like, their insecurity, and they are very square. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, yeah. Oh, damn! I forgot I was gonna say jesus something about jarmusch how hartley's reputation no oh well it also shows i think the age is again we're not that different but like for me the blow up and then this made me like how hartley even more was there was this i always i always felt like i mean it's a book that would only be written just for me but there's this parallel it's todd haynes todd solons and how hartley this is now the late 90s where they were always mentioned in the same they all released their movies you know, it's the happiness, Velvet Goldmine, Henry Fool period, where the following film they got with either like Harvey Weinstein or or in Hal Hartley's case, he got with the, um, you know, American Zotrope. And he still didn't really compromise his style. Like it wasn't, yeah, yeah okay, he got, Ju- okay, he got Julie Christine is fine, um, but still, oh, and Helen Mirren, but he still kind of made a, a Hal Hartley movie. He still brought along his regular guys and he still didn't, you know what I mean? And And of the three, He's the one that I'm, I'm not saying I'm just only term that I can use. He's the one that fell back. Whereas, you know, Todd Haynes went on to do his thing. And then, you know, for a, a, a second, Todd Solons was, you know, next to working with Harvey Weinstein and blah, blah, blah. But he um, it just makes me th- think of that, too, how like even way later in, in his career, he never really get, you know, like Jeff Goldblum being in one of his movies was like a big deal. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. by the time Faye Krim came along, he always kind of. You know, it's, yeah. it's funny watching this movie too. I really felt transported back to a different era in American indie movies. And I was thinking about this where the American, I don't know how people elucidate it, but the American indie movie period 
begins in earnest with Stranger in Paradise in 84, and it ends with Pulp Fiction in 94. And I think Pulp Fiction really killed off the American indie film as what it was in that era. Instead of wanting to make uh, a movie like Hal Hartley, everybody suddenly wants to make Pulp Fiction knockoffs. They want to make Italian exploitation knockoffs. They want to make black exploitation. That invades the American indie space in such a massive way. None of these people want to make Day of Wrath anymore. If you want to be Hal Hartley and make Day of Wrath, that's gone. The American indie space gets flooded by people who want to make like, you know, a zombie with a shotgun. You know, that's just yeah, like yeah. what nobody wants becomes. to do their cock to Beauty and the Beast, you know, movie the way that yeah, Hartley did. Way, yeah. Yeah. And there's and there's in fact there's an old uh Mads how do you say his name? Matt Zoller Sites. What's Matt his Zoller name? Sites. Yeah, Zoller Sites. There's a Matt Zoller Sites article that uh begins with a Hal Hartley quote from a long time ago. I can't remember the exact quote, but it's something to the effect of, and this has got to be from like 94, 95, you have all these people making movies uh, about people running around with guns, but what they should be making movies about are guys sitting around watching movies about people running around with guns, right? And I think that that's, that's a really big, like Hal Hartley, there's guns in his movies, there's violence in his movies occasionally. There's even like stylish hitmen. There's weird parallels between amateur and Pulp Fiction, not just Absolutely. in Alina Lowenson's haircut and like the no, suit no. wearing hitmen and stuff. There's really? a lot of there's a lot of parallels between them, right? And it predates Pulp Fiction yes, uh, um, very slightly. I mean, they're they're virtually simultaneous, but it's sort of like this alternate reality that gets blipped out of existence by Pulp Fiction. The like Jim Jarmusch, early Richard Lankletter. Again, I was on the Criterion uh, channel, not to name drop, but they have a bunch of they have like a Lankletter series recently and they have a bunch of Lankletter's early movies. And it's and it's so interesting to go back and watch slacker or it's impossible to learn to plow by reading books or uh heads i win tails you lose right and be like he was uh that was a different era of artistic thought back then it was just a different world from it and in fact there's a funny short film on there um that link letter made call i think it's called just another day at the office or another day at the office have either of you guys seen this no it's Linkletter stars in it playing himself where it opens with him on a phone call um, getting script notes from a bunch of like 32 year old uh, executives on a new project he's doing while he's on the phone. He's like feeding his pigs and his and his bird feeders on his farm while he's getting these like very condescending script notes from him. And then the second half is him at a therapist's office talking about how he feels like his life is just his artistic life is over that just like he had all of his phases and it's done now. Right. And that he's just going to be pushed into making another before sunrise movie and that's like that's the only thing he's going to get to do and the rest of it is going to be like doing these projects that don't mean anything to him and he talks about um getting these audio tapes from a friend of his uh when he first went away to college he and his best friends wouldn't write letters they would just record tapes cassette tapes for each other and send them as as letters to each other and his friend is like hey i found a bunch of these tapes you want them back and he said he listened to them just him talking about himself and the excitement he has for like these little projects that are so modest in comparison to what he ended up doing but he finds himself really excited for these modest projects and very like uh 
uh, worrying he's not going to ever be excited for that anything again as he was for like making a four hour experimental film that's like head and tail leaders from cut off of movies from the Austin Film Society, right? And um, and it's just like you realize there really is an era that had a different artistic mindset that it's, I don't think it's there anymore. I think it was the way new Hollywood cinema was like a very specific moment. New German cinema was a very specific moment. French new wave was a very specific moment that you have this very specific moment of the American indie movie. That's like, if you, if you want to go something before stranger than paradise, maybe like a year or two, I don't know what, but that's definitely like stranger than paradise by like, crystallizes the zeitgeist right and then pulp fiction shatters that zeitgeist and it never gets rebuilt and i think this movie very strongly belongs to that era that's that's completely dead that makes me really wistful because i belong to that mindset more than i belong to the new mindset you know what i mean like as an artist as a person as an audience i i connect with with surviving desire more than i'll ever connect with you know once upon a time in hollywood or boondock saints or two days in the valley or whatever that kind of like tarantino and sons of tarantino shit that came along afterwards you know yeah i i keep it's funny as you say too it's like even now i'm like dating myself if if you're like 30 years old or 29 I don't and and you're heavily into film which seems like a lot of people I don't even think they know like that mid 90s period where like you really have no idea to some of these people how Pulp Fiction was just everywhere even like like it was it was culturally seismic yeah and you try to and, and like certain things that Pulp Fiction clearly influenced but even but because it wasn't like multi storyline where everything connect with cool Elvis references if it didn't have that, people would be like, what are you talking about? This isn't related to Pulp Fiction, but it's like, yes, it is. Like, there's so many, like, just... And that's what's so weird, too. Sounds more like Mystery Train. Well, that's what I'm going to say, is Pulp (laughs) Pulp Fiction is a Mystery Train ripoff in a way that I never hear people talk about. Very, like, like... All of those movies I just mentioned were made by people who are clearly fans of Pulp Fiction and wouldn't have had their artistic thoughts without Pulp Fiction. The Pulp Fiction is to Mystery Train. They wouldn't have had that artistic thought without Mystery Train. Zero percent chance. You know, uh, it's just uh, the the total approach, you know, and it's not. And he famously makes a lot of references to other things. It's funny because Joe Strummer's in Straight to Hell as well. And it's like, I guess he was, it's hard for me to imagine Tarantino being a Clash fan just because it's like too mainstream. He's too much of a crate digger. He's going to tell you how much more he likes Coxbar or something like that than than the Clash. But just like, he really? Yeah, you know, um, I think Tarantino does that. She, he turns it on because he talks about and references super obvious stuff sometimes, yeah. and then like he does it. He's a very evade, like intentionally yeah. like I don't True. know what you're talking about, but it's like. But if let me just ta- say, if you're talking about this thing and you don't know that thing. I'm calling bullshit. I'm sorry. Let, like yeah. that's what he does. Let me just say, I have not listened to or read an interview with him in 20 years at least. So <laughs> who the hell knows? I have no idea what he's like actually. Um, but it is. It is funny that it makes such a huge change such a seismic change john do you agree with my analysis of these eras do you agree with what Absolutely. i'm saying of course of course i was there i remember what it was like <laughs> but became, you think- well i mean the funny thing is that you know uh from the year 1990 to 1994 you know <laughs> i was like it, it, it 
it was a it was a cult, you know. I mean, it really was. It was like you know, you knew a few guys who had heard of Hal Hartley or Jim Jarmusch, uh, or even Spike Lee. You know, I mean, it's just like it wasn't a huge thing that came up. It wasn't a mainstream, and Pulp Fiction made it all mainstream, and that was that's where it ends. You know, when everyone knows about it, and Sp- everyone wants to see the next Pulp Fiction movie. Man, I'm not, I don't want to go off on a huge tangent, but I'm learning to well, not learning. I was I was kind of around it where it's like the Spike Lee fandom. There were like two separate worlds. They were just like the black fan base who just loved Spike Lee because what he was doing in the film, but they like, they had no idea the people that he was associated with in terms of like next to like, like how Hartley Jim people, he was mentioned in the same, well, they had no idea who, who those people were. And well, I, that's, kind that's, of, you know, that's why it's so interesting to look at four rooms. Now that's a very interesting contextualization <laughs> of where American and indie cinema was at, where it was seen at the time Quentin Tarantino comes from the same world as Alison Anders and Alexander Alexander Rockwell and, and, and Steve Buscemi. So the Coen brothers, like I'm playing his character from Barton Fink, basically are Tim Roth. Sorry. Tim Roth is playing Steve Buscemi's character from Barton Fink face. Jesus Christ. I'm botching this all up in my mind. Right. Well, they offered it to Buscemi, right? Yes. They offered it to Buscemi. He didn't want to do it because he said, you're having me play my character from Barton Fink. So Tim Roth did it instead. Right. (laughs) So even that sort of that world that Tarantino, like it's crazy that anybody was ever like, he's similar to Alexander Rockwell and Alison Anders. They're from the same world. It's crazy that that's to put him in that world, to put him in that context. But that was the American independent cinema world. Then that's the kind of people that were in it. And to just so wholly leave it behind, you know, even I think that uh, Robert Rodriguez is funny to have in that movie because people don't, I think, are aware of El Mariachi incredibly limited distribution nobody fucking saw that movie right you know el mariachi was a real rarity oh my god before before tarantino sort of blew it up that's one of those movies uh this would have been junior high so desperado comes out and like i remember the older kids like yeah but he did uh this he did uh el mariachi before and it would be have you seen it no no i haven't seen it it was was yeah exactly um, when I, i i parallel this to professional wrestling the the like I'm talking super small handful of people that were around growing up that were into wrestling. When like wrestling magazine and tapes came out, you get these previews for like the Japanese death match tapes that you had to buy. And yeah. people would say like, my favorite wrestler is Jushin Thunder Liger. And I've been like, have you actually seen him wrestle? It's like, no. And so how is he your favorite? Because <laughs> he was just one of those guys you read about or just saw a quick little clip at the, at the start of like a VHS tape. And they would just be like, it's like, oh man, those Cactus Jack matches in Japan. And like, have you seen them? And they're like, no, no, but you know. it's just reminding me but i heard about it it is that and it was a different era for all that too you couldn't see things like i wanted to see el mariachi but it just no video store had it just wasn't anywhere where i was you know you just couldn't really see it um until later until his association with tarantino and desperado he sort of blew it up but even that's funny to think about when you look at robert rodriguez's career that like what what now occupies the space where Hal Hartley once was. It's it's fucking Robert Rodriguez. That's nuts. Like some guy whose yeah. dream in life is to do episodic Star Wars television. You know, those are sort yeah. of those sort of all of those people like that. You know, and and you know, 
I would say like Christopher Nolan types too, where, okay, we'll make our independent film as a calling card so we can make huge budget Hollywood movies. The Wachowskis did the same thing, you know, where it's sort of people weren't trying to be Gus Van Sant anymore, you know, where like, maybe I can bring my independent thing to Hollywood, to the mainstream in some way, you know, it was just this is a space that's a stepping stone to somewhere else, as opposed to a space pursuing its own means and ends and interests. And which started into like immediately after Pulp Fiction, usual suspects and Brian Singer is the very next year, you know? Yeah. yeah. And that feels like that's yeah. the next like yeah. independent guy, you know, just making a calling card to go on and do Superman movies, you know? Yeah. And, and the screenwriter of that, who's now like Tom Cruise's guy, what was the name of their first movie? Is it Public Access? Something yes. like that. They have some movie before Usual Suspect, which again was nothing. And then when that came out, it was like, it's this indie movie they made that's really cool. And of, and of course, it's not cool at all. <laughs> but people forget the like, the... The Joe Carnahan, like he gut bullets an octane. Like that's like that's the kind of movie that filled up that space very, very quickly. And there's and there's some, you know, it's funny that even when interesting artists came along, like somebody like Wes Anderson, that definitely has a unique artistic vision. His first movie is like promoted as Reservoir Geeks. It's yeah. like pitched as a kind of pseudo Tarantino yeah. nerd version of what he's doing in some way, which is how strong the stranglehold was, is that they were trying to pitch Wes Anderson as a Tarantino novel. That's exactly, that's exactly what I was trying to allude to earlier, where it's like Bottle Rocket got compared, got put into that Tarantino world, where it's like, you just couldn't, like, you just couldn't escape it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's this, a perfect example. And so this movie, watching Surviving Desire, just feels like archaeological in some way. And it is funny too. I watch it and like I'm just still so like fucking excited for it. Like when Ted Hope's name comes up as producer at the end, Ted Hope has gone on to be a very powerful, famous producer. He runs Amazon Studios still, I think. He was for a long time. But like just seeing his name as the producer of this movie and remembering like there was just like a different world and some of these people were a part of it. And it's funny too, because, you know, Matt, we mentioned Matt Malloy plays Toothy in Basket Case 2, if you haven't seen it. But Ted Hope was an assistant director on Basket case too as well like there's like that just like it's just such a different world that existed that's just gone we're speaking of ending credits at the end of unbelievable truth the very first credit you see is director of photography michael spiller and you're like oh michael spiller or just alum michael spiller it just feels (laughs) great to see these names you know mr striped shirt michael spiller every time i've ever seen him (laughs) he's wearing a black and white striped shirt (laughs) this is aesthetic that's fine but yeah. I, I wanted to go back to what you're saying about the suggestion of Harley movies and specifically with Surviving Desire. I just I, I was I was young, but I was still I remember I was at the start of it when Kevin Smith blew up when Clerks came out and it was this big thing. And I just associate everyone in my world who talked about Clerks and you can go one step further to Mallrats, people who loved that movie going like uh hey you want hey check out surviving desire check out this one this movie from this director that influenced clerks they'd be like what the hell is this you know i think that's yeah. a big kind of thing i think that's another thing too and i guess that's a personal thing but when i think of like and and again okay no l- later in life when you watch shows like kevin smith speaks the type of people who i don't mean to sound judgy i'm sorry if, if i'm coming off a certain way but like the typical, first of all, the typical Kevin Smith fan is like not a fan. They're they're really they're weirdly obsessed with hating him, but they know everything about him and they know his <laughs> movies and they go to see him speak. It's just this kind of 
I'm, I'm, I'm holding back certain things I want to say, but it's like, again, I don't associate them with, with them ever wanting to sit through like this well, amazing, incredibly smart, thought out, you know, like razor sharp dialogue from a guy like Hal Hart and, and, and unique also. I just, I just can't, you know what I'm well, saying? They're, they're well, it's interesting, of, you know, because yeah. you see him thanked at the end of Clerks and you think, you know, <laughs> Kevin Smith is nothing like Hal Hartley, what the hell? But I think one thing he takes from yeah, him it is. earnestly is the achingly romantic feel of Clerks, which Kevin Smith lost along the way, you know, but sure. this, you know, how Hartley's best films, this one and Trust and Unbelievable Truth are achingly romantic. But yeah, always, there's an average people living with love and desire to Clerks that is very Hal Hartley-esque. Absolutely. There, that, and, and even the humor and the language and the stiltedness of it, I think is him sort of taking, I think he takes the wrong lesson from Hal Hartley, which is that I don't have to edit that much. I can just point the camera at two people and that's enough for a <laughs> shot as opposed to like, there's different ways of composing these two people in a frame. But I think that sensibility as well. But I think you're absolutely right John, that the idea of just like average people in gas stations, Hal Hartley movies are set in like gas stations and roadsides and crummy blocks and alleys. And that's Marion Clerks. He's from Hal Hartley's roots are Lindenhurst, Long Island. And I think that shows all in his earth, like the characters, like, like the parents and the get like the working class, they've got those hardcore. He worked in an iron foundry before he got, he got the money, I think from his boss at the iron foundry to make unbelievable truth. Even like little, now that when you live in New York and like two of my closest friends are from, my, my wife is from, so you pick up these little things that you hear, especially in unbelievable truth and trust. Like, I just the the the, the father. Well, he's the father. Um, the father and Audrey's father. An unbelievable truth is such a Long Island guy, and I can like now I now know enough to say that you know like just a little thing when Long Island people are just like when you say something and they find it amazing and go yeah like that's that, that that's like a very Long Island. Thing. I'm not saying that only people do it, but it, it's little stuff you know like that. But um, also going back to but going back to the Kevin Smith thing. I think about the pacing of like, I think about Dante and Randall speaking to each other in Clerks or Jason Lee and uh, Jeremy London talking to each other in Mallrats where it's like, it's almost like one's just waiting for the other person to stop talking so that they can say their line. Like th- th- there's no breath in between. Yeah. It's just like, it's like, how do you even know to say what you just said based off what that last person said, like you, like you didn't even take a second to think about what they said in order to this well thought out response. And that's, that is, it is Hartley-esque. It's not necessarily, I, I get, I like old Kevin Smith and I love how Hartley. So to some degree, it also breaks my heart thinking about knowing that how Hartley's like, God, I don't want to be associated with him. You know what I'm saying? But like, <laughs> but I think this is what we're talking about where yeah. how Hartley really wants to be Brisson or Dre or a Godard and Kevin Smith is like, who? And I think that that is a mindset <laughs> difference, sure, sure, and, but sure. I really think it is. I think, no, I, I think, right. I think how Hartley goes, Oh no, am I Kevin Smith? You know, I thought, I thought I was, I thought I was Brisson. I really did. People have been calling me Godard, but oh no, am I Kevin Smith? That, that I think is probably his reaction as much as anything is like, oh shit, that's true. I'm actually more like this other guy than my heroes. You know, I think that that's, that's probably a little bit of it because he is a very modest guy and I'm I'm sure he's glad 
Jersey McDick jokes over here. <laughs> but I, uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm sure you guys have appreciated my restraint and not doing my how Hartley impression this whole this whole fucking episode my famous because he sounds exactly like ray romano who's another ray romano's got to be a long island guy right queens but what queens queens Close is a part of long island to quote, yeah uh, how Hartley I, I keep forgetting to ask john frankensteiner oh. what his uh how long island how appropriately long island the how harley movies are he's uh, it's got to be perfectly I, long yeah, island that, absolutely yeah. uh, other, like i've watched a couple with my wife um, I guess she's from the nicer part of like my other friends from Long Island. When I say like, oh, my wife, she's from Kings Park. They go like, oh, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Like my buddy Tone, my buddy Chris or my buddy Brad. They're, well, Brad's actually from a nice problem. But when I tell them, they're just like, oh, you know, where's where where are EPMD from? They're from Brentwood, which is okay. like the boondocks is what everyone calls it. Well, I know it's called the boondocks because of the fucking songs, but I didn't know yeah. what the actual neighborhood was. Yeah. Brentwood, Long Island. Brothers from Brentwood, Long Island. That's that's one of their songs. Um, yeah, I don't know. Do you guys do you guys feel like I'm being too fatalistic when I say that like something has irre- irrevocably changed about American independent cinema? Absolutely not. No, but it, 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 there's actually, but there's even more to it when you talk about the like, oh no, am I this guy? Once the 2000s started, there was this whole like what I called like like the these illegitimate children of Hal Hartley and, you know, Todd Solons to a lesser extent were like everything was quirky. The music soundtracks were wonky, like the, the color palettes. Were, like, yes, yellow, I, call those, I call those I call those Amera indie movies, the like Little Miss Sunshine. Right. God, like that's like Jesus. Yeah. But but like, you and me yeah. and everyone we know. Yes. You know, like these are, these are, it's, yeah. there's like, we used to do on the year in reviews, the, for the museum of Amer indie style, these movies that are just like somewhere between Hal Hartley and Wes Anderson, Juno, Juno, exactly. Yeah. Just like, just like somehow, but they all feel like cheap consumerist products. They don't feel like artworks, Juno, right? God, that's, a, yeah. that's, 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 I think part of the defining style of it is they feel like attempts to make money like any you know in a very strange way there's something about what happens to it exactly what you're saying where it 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 loses its look man i can't believe i'm about to fucking say this it loses its soul in some way you know and, it, and it's, that it's true it's true it hey. stopped it stops becoming like uh, our tourist art and becomes something else. I don't know, but I wonder, is that just because I saw this these movies when I was 14, 15, 16 years old? Is there somebody who grew up and saw Little Miss Sunshine when they were 15 that's like, that's a life-changing yes. fucking thing? I guarantee, yes, yes. Yeah, but absolutely. are they idiots or are they right? Or is there a difference? <laughs> I don't want to give my answer because I don't want to come up like an asshole, which I think I just gave my answer, but hey, whatever. Yeah, that, which is that they're right. John, what do you think about what I'm saying? Do you think I'm being too fatalistic? Aren't there interesting artists emerging every moment and the future is always changing and interesting things are happening? There are just not as many. I mean, it kind of mean to cut you off, John. No, no, no. It's 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 definitely different where, you know, it doesn't feel groundbreaking anymore. It feels like yeah. you know, every once in a while, someone will come out with a movie and you'll think, oh, I really enjoyed that. But it doesn't really feel connected to like uh, the, the scope of american film i when you said american film just now i thought what the fuck is american film these days i don't even know Seriously. what you would call it i know i know yeah 
Yeah, it's just it's not as exciting. I mean, you know, these indie American films are all shot, you know, at like the the mansion of like a friend of the producer. Like this was shot in Poughkeepsie, you know, like it's yeah. it's just like not the, it's not a genuine DIY kind of production. It's not something that comes from the heart. It doesn't have the soul. <laughs> that these films have not to stir the hornet's nest too much but i think that's also part of what bothered me about the like scorsese mcu thing is like yeah the blockbusters are always going to be blockbuster cinema people are always going to make the towering inferno right what the bigger concern is is what is the culture of the small movies like there it's it's what not movies the same are you talking about getting crushed by giant tentacles? yeah films? what are these movies that people are trying to make that should be being given more life i don't see indie art films uh that are deserving of the same praise of jarmusch is there an american independent artist oh, on the statue of jarmusch or lick letter in the past 20 years Oh, now that you got that specific. Well, when you word it like that, it's it's hard to kind of, Jesus, I don't know. But even, it just even feels the words that I named, not like, America. Not in, well, and not, not in other countries too. It's not just not in America. Um, yeah, but then I think about, I do have my own answers, but then it's like, you know, like, who cares about Joanna Hogg as much as I do? Like, yeah, you know well, I think like, that, I'm, well, I'm, that's I'm, the I'm, thing is France still produces the Mia Hansen loves, right? It still yeah. produces, you have Lucretia Martel, you have Claire Denis, those people are, Claire Denis goes back to the Hal Hartley, right? what am I fucking yeah. talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like the, but you still have what's missing from here. And I don't think it's just that the Marvel movies sucked all the oxygen out of the room. I think it's the fucking wannabe Christopher Nolans and Tarantinos that sucked all of the oxygen out of the room. That's oh, yeah. what I think it is. I don't think it's the Marvel. I think it's, I think it's everybody who wants to be Anna Fleck and Ryan Bolden, you know, like the people who go and make their indie movie to make a Marvel film. I think that's actually what is more detrimental than like, you know, Martin Scorsese doesn't get $150 million to make a tentpole or whatever the supposed argument is or whatever the middle class is. I think it's not the middle class that hurts. You still have prestige television. You still have plenty of prestige projects getting made. I think it's the independent world that's been completely destroyed in the modern era in some way. And I don't think it's the Marvel movies that destroyed it. <laughs> there, are no, there are no statues to topple. They're just leaves in the wind. You know, they blow right no, away. No, that's a good point. My, I, Look, I'll go back. My, my problem with the Marvel thing, it almost has nothing to do with Scorsese. My thing is just like... I don't want to talk about the Marvel except in no, the very no. limited context of how yeah, Hartley, so if you're going to get track. No, okay. not, I'll be very quick. It's just like you're making lots of money. People are seeing your movies like you're not oppressed. And people say, and, and it's like, yes, there are a, a large vocal amount is, of those folks who act fucking oppressed is, and, and is, it pisses me off it really is, Scor- me off. is scorsese oppressed no, no i'm not but that's what i'm saying like i can okay. say i can criticize these people i even talk about Mark, okay it has nothing to do with it. tie it's it into how hartley real quick is that kind of, i want to see how hartley do an ant-man movie <laughs> no, i no. don't i don't want to see any of the filmmakers of i, I like oh, go make any for anyone movies. listening for anyone listening i'm joking because the way chris said that yeah. it's like I, no i don't want to see that shit either well but there's a lot of filmmakers that, that, that i've lost 
to like, you know, Peter Jackson went and made Lord of the Rings. That was a filmmaker I loved. And then yeah, he was just yeah. gone. You know, Sam Raimi goes and makes the Spider-Man movies. Unfortunately, I get, you know, um, drag me to hell. But it's it's really it just takes a huge bite out of their artistic career when you go make big blockbusters. So that's that's my reaction. But I think but I do think that's something if you talk about Linkletter, Hal Hartley, Jim Jarmusch, even Spike Lee, none of those guys would ever under any circumstances make a Star Wars movie. You know, and I think that that is. Whereas you can think of Tarantino. I'm surprised if Spike Lee delved okay. around, but I get what you're saying. Everyone different. else know. Everyone yeah. else know. Everyone else. Know. But Tarantino, of course, it's very plausible that he's connected yeah, yeah. to Star Trek, right? That's very plausible. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I think that that is a difference. I think that that's a real difference. Is that like, it's just not a space that I feel like exists anymore. Yeah. Which is weird because it's fucking easier than ever to make movies. Yeah, you know that's uh, that's another good point. Yeah, but you're saying that though. But then, depending on what day of the week is, Mister like pop culture, everything, not just deep cut shit, but pop culture stuff. What depending on what side of the bed he wakes up on, Tarantino would be like, you know, I I never really was into Star Trek that much. You know what I'm saying? Just just to be the kind of person that he is, I'm weirdly obsessed with him. So I, I, I can I can confidently say that that's some shit that he would say on a Wednesday and then two years later he would be attached to some Star Trek shit it, it just is because he's just like that after, so, after anyway. there have been 50 variety articles Tarantino linked to Star Trek or to James yeah. Bond or whatever yeah, yeah yeah yes so yeah yeah but Charmouche you know and it's and I don't I don't want to have nostalgia for an age that ever existed, never existed or romanticize things too much you know but I do think that one thing I would say that's definitely difference between our generation and every generation that followed the idea of selling out doesn't exist to them. You know, the idea that Mm -hmm. you might not want to give your art, your song to a fucking Sunkissed soda commercial that you might not want to give away pieces of your art to a consumerist culture, to fandom cultures that you might not want to give a part of your artistic identity away to corporatism and consumerism just doesn't exist to young people. It's just not even, it's not even a question of whether you should do it or not. It's just that, that you would ever not want to go on to make star Wars. I don't think exists to them. I don't, or stranger things or mad men or breaking bad or something. I just don't think it exists to go on and like, who wouldn't want to go on and direct prestige TV for HBO max. You know, like, I don't, I don't think that idea of selling out even exists anymore. Yeah. You cut, you cut your dad a check and you hop on Robert Burke's back and that's the end of the movie. <laughs> well, I think that, you know, I, it's how that's part of why Hal Hartley isn't known is he refuses to do that and post no such thing. He really just goes off into his own wilderness because there's no world for it anymore. I think it doesn't help that he generally stops making as interesting of movies, but I do feel like he just heads out into a world that that is just gone in some fundamental way. Yet this movie to me has got a timelessness that, you know, I'll always be able to return to it. And just like Marcus was saying, how it kind of means something different to you, you know, the older you get and the more you revisit it. I, you know, moved to Poughkeepsie. I didn't place that that's where they shot this movie. But seeing, you know, the Bardavon in the background, you know, and Market Street and all the places and recognizing it's like, 
it's it's like you working with Mary Ward, you know, in a way. It's like, you know, I just have this like <laughs> this magical piece of art that I love that means so much to me become part of my life by accident, completely by accident. Yeah. And so that's a whole new kind of perspective and a new way to look at it. So it's really a beautiful movie. I really love this fucking movie. It's really great. It knocked me out this time watching it. It hit me as hard as it's ever hit it. And it's it's been a couple of years since I've seen it. It's been at least five or six years since I watched it. And it and it really, it just completely, completely floored me this time. It, it just hit me exactly as hard as it's supposed to in every way. It's a movie I love and to live, just move forward towards those you love, right? <laughs> John, no love is free. It's Freud, you know? <laughs> uh, Marcus, any final thoughts on the film for us? Um, any final thoughts on the Marvel conversation that I'm going to cut out of this because I don't want to deal with those people? Um, uh, I guess I'll just say, as it relates to Hal Hartley and Surviving Desire, even though in the last decade or so, it's been a little easier to see. For I, I don't know if we mentioned for a long time, this wasn't the easiest movie to see. Um, now you can see it. So those the only... <laughs> It's this on YouTube kind of, in a nice copy. Yeah. Go watch it. It's on yeah. YouTube. Yeah. Oh, and this. Yeah. Oh, this is a um, Patreon thing, anyway, right? This this episode. No, everybody's going to hear this. Oh, all right. Well, it'll get taken down eventually. So see it. See it. Watch it. Watch it quick. But um, <laughs> I think this is. It's it's just a weird kind of paradox thing where it's like it's an important, a very important film in his filmography. <laughs> But I just want folks to watch other stuff before they watch this. And I know, I guess, Chris, you have kind of an opposite take, but whatever little intricacies I'm kind of like struggling to say, this is a great film. Um, Also, on a side note, it's just, again, it's weird doing this podcast with you guys. I think how Hartley was like one of our first strongest connections. I think it was Haneke. But after Haneke, I remember being like, oh, these guys really (laughs) like when I didn't really know you. I was like, oh, these guys really like how Hartley. Oh, that's cool. I don't know. It was our our shared hatred amongst the three of us of Matthew Barney, I believe, is what brought us together. All three of us hated Matthew Barney so much. Close, close. (laughs) <laughs> one guy loved it and still does he still think he does really cool important stuff Parker asks about River of Fundament all the time oh, when he graduates I already said when he graduates high school I'll see what I can do about getting him a copy of it even after he broke Bjork's heart you're still gonna front for that I guy. care about I don't I care about Matthew Barney so much more than I care about Bjork I'm just, keep, I'm just keeping it real uh, John any final thoughts for you? Would you recommend this movie to Hal Hartley fans to start? No, you've already said you don't recognize it. I thought this. you were going to ask if I was going to recommend it to Hal Hartley. And I was like, well, <laughs> I would definitely try to convince him it's one of his best and not his worst. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Marcus, thank you for coming on and doing of the course. show again. Uh, it's always great to have you on. I feel like there was a stretch there where we weren't having you on that much. And, yeah. uh, you know, now you're going to be on here too much. It's quite a balance. That's fine. I, I don't mind being on here too much, especially if it's talking about subjects like how Hartley were and, and it's, you know, it's very difficult to not talk about everything he's done and focus on one movie. But, you know, yeah, I'll always talk about next stuff time. Like how Hartley Ben's next, always the third Mike, in my opinion. Well, next I love, time. I love Marty Kessler, but there's no look, I'm day one. Look, next time, though, Marcus, Marcus, next time. Day one. Day yeah. one. We're not going to talk about how Hartley next episode. We're going to talk about Keys to Tulsa, Two Days in the Valley, uh, Boondock Saints, Way of the Gun all of your favorite Tarantino knockoffs. We're going to bring them in and we're going to talk about them 
is does, gonna, does eight heads in a duffel bag count? Does eight I'm heads gonna, in a duffel yes, bag count? Yes, I need a roll. Does. Yes, it does. I'm going to intentionally no show also. I'm going to say, <laughs> yeah, no, no, I'll be there. Yeah, 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 yeah. What time again? I just wanted to make sure so I can definitely be there. And then when I've the got, time comes, I'm going to no show. I've got this idea. It's about a couple of hitmen in suits who get into this ultraviolent shit and they make some quips about pop culture. It's yeah. going to be so fucking good. And, and 11, dr- 11 to 45. Drugs. Drugs. 45. Does here's the question: Eleven to forty-five. Does does killing Zoe count as a Tarantino knockoff? Oh, see, that's. I mean, I guess <laughs> it's Tarantino adjacent for obvious reasons, but whatever. Uh, that was a, oh man, that was another movie where tell having to tell the older kids in my high school like Tarantino did not direct that movie. It was what that was that was the height <laughs> of like from the makers of, and it's like that's not what that means. I remember being like 14 years old, understand like they're just trying to get you. It's a marketing thing. That doesn't mean that 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 I I knew a kid the movie. Yeah, I remember getting an argument with someone who was convinced um, that he had written. Uh, fuck, what's uh, convinced that he had written Chunking Express. Oh my God! Yes. Not that he had, he knew he didn't directed it, but that he had oh written Chunking and Sun and Sun Teen and all that. Sh- oh God! The director of Switchblade Sisters. Let's let's, <laughs> let's get out. Let, let, let's end this. I'm God, that I'm that would annoyed. be that would literally be the worst episode. Is a Sons of Tarantino episode. That is literally the worst genre to ever uh, exist. Or fun. I I, I mean, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I think the market should bring some that. interesting insights yes. to that topic. Honestly, it'd be a four-hour episode. I I would have I I could go on forever with that. We definitely have to order a pizza and some Doritos and a six-pack of soda. I feel like that's the not even a two-liter of Coca-Cola. Get like four of them. I feel like that's the way all of those movies were watched, with just like Domino's and you know, not even Domino's, lo- crappy local pizzeria, and six pack what did, uh, what did rogers say in american dad maybe order a pizza and a two liter <laughs> good night everybody right, what well, better way to end a hartley episode than american dad reference <laughs> i quote that to myself all the time i'm hungry i should get a pizza and a two liter john john chris you know what the problem with americans is y'all want a tragedy with a happy end that's for real Good night, everybody. I got to go eat dinner. <laughs>